Hey there, folks. Dan Figella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast. And as of late, we've covered a number of topics from artificial intelligence to augmenting sentience and, and uh, a number of topics in the emerging tech domain. A lot of it has to do with, particularly when we, when we ask folks to, to look out in the next five or ten years and make predictions, which often we do with our guests, we're dealing with uh, something that we often don't address by its name, uncertainty. And today I have on the line with me uh, an, an author and teacher in the domain of uncertainty, a professor of computer science at Cornell University, author of Reasoning About Uncertainty and an upcoming book about causality, Mr. Joe Halpern. Joe, how are you? I'm doing well. Fantastic. Glad to be able to have you on. I know before we started recording here, you had spoken a little bit about uh, this idea of uncertainty normally being dealt with with the tool of um, uh, of uh, probability, and that ultimately when we're when we're kind of guesstimating what might happen in a domain where we don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, as human beings, we like to boil things down to numbers, but it's not the only way to do it, and maybe not always the best. Give us a quick rundown of, of alternative approaches to uncertainty and why they might be useful. Sure. So let me say to start out with, I'm a big fan of probability. Um, it's just that I think it's not always the right tool. Yep. So if you're at a roulette table, we really understand the probabilities. You know, what's the probability of getting double zero? You know, one out of 38. What's the probability of getting a red? A little bit less than a half. Black, a little bit less than a half. And it's true. If we repeat it over and over again, we really find that those are the frequencies. That's great. But when it comes to things like climate change, do we really know that the probability of something happening is, you know, one over 10,000, one over 100,000? Those are domains where we really don't have enough statistics enough information about, about events to really come up with a good probability. And I want there's a big difference to my mind between a coin that you've tossed a million times and just about half the time it's landed heads, just about half the time it's landed tails, so you're pretty confident that the probability of heads is a half, whatever that means exactly. I'm not going to get into the philosophical issues of what that means, versus a coin that you believe might be biased in some way. It's made at this factory where, you know, for a fact, they bias their coins sometimes. You have no clue of how it's biased. Now, if you were forced to give me a single number, and I, you know, you say, look, what's the probability of hits? And, and I'm asking you to give me a probability now, a single number. Well, you'd say a half, because you have no reason to prefer heads to tails. Yeah, tails one side to heads. or the other, exactly. If you, if you have to give me a single number, half seems like the obvious choice. It does. But it seems to me there's a huge difference between the coin that you've tossed a million times before and you I'm pretty confident that a land heads half the time, so the probability of heads is a half. And the coin where you're saying half because a half is meant to denote no clue. I mean, you, you actually have some reason to believe it's biased, but you don't know how it's biased, so you're modeling your no clue by saying probability a half. And it seems to me that, that and, and there has been lots of research on this now, I, I, there are ways of modeling uncertainty that don't necessarily use probability, or at least don't necessarily use a single probability measure, that are better equipped to model the situation where you have no clue than just saying, well, the probability is a half, and I'm going to take a half, because that's my best way of capturing no clue. Yeah, and, and that's, that is curious, because you can see how, you know, I mean, if, if you used it in isolation, if you said, hey, I got a bias coin, um, what are the probabilities? You could, you could very easily see how Oh, 50-50, I mean, I have no idea which side is going to be biased here, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to give them uh, half odds. You can see how when you contrast that with the coin that you have flipped a million times, 
if we're dealing with them on some level in the same way, maybe there are disadvantages in terms of how that makes us make assumptions, how that makes us take actions. Well, yeah. Well, that's the actions part that I'm most interested in. Yep. So that in many circumstances, we have to make decisions in the face of uncertainty. I'm mean, think about climate change policy. For sure. Um, and in that case, it really matters how you're going to represent the uncertainty. And there, in other words, if you were betting, would you feel the same way about betting? So suppose I told you there's a bet that was guaranteed to pay off $3 of the coin landed heads and you get, you have to pay $2, right? So that yeah. if a coin lands heads, you've lost $2. If the coin lands, sorry, coin lands tails, you've lost $2. If coin lands heads, you've gotten $3. If you knew this was a fair coin, that would be a pretty good bet, right? Mm. And suppose we're going to do this 10 times. So you're pretty confident after you toss the coin 10 times if it's really a fair coin, unless you're pretty unlucky, you're going to see you know, pretty close to a half big heads and you're making $3 every time um, it lands heads and you're losing $2 every time it lands tails. This is a good bet. Not bad. But suppose you have no clue. Would you feel the same way? Well, it turns out people don't. So there's a really famous experiment called the Ellsberg Paradox. It's due to Daniel Ellsberg. It was very famous for older listeners for the Pentagon Papers back in the 70s, but uh, he was also a decision theorist. And here was his experiment. Uh, you have an urn that has 90 balls. 30 of them are guaranteed to be red. So you know the probability of picking a red ball is one-third, 30 out of 90, right? The other 60 are either blue or yellow. But I'm not telling you which proportion is blue and which proportion is yellow. But you do know that, that 60 of them are either blue or yellow. I guarantee you that. Yeah. Okay? Now, what would you prefer? I'm going to give you two pairs of bets. I'm, there's no right answer. I'm just asking you what your preferences are. Uh, I'm going to choose a ball out of the urn. And you have a choice of two bets. One will pay off a dollar if it's a red ball and otherwise zero. So you win if it's a red ball. The other one will pay off a dollar if it's a blue ball or otherwise zero. So with bet one, you, you're, you're happy if it's a red ball and otherwise you're indifferent. With bet two, you're happy if it's a blue ball, otherwise indifferent. So remember, let me remind you, you know for a fact that a third of the balls are red. Yep. With blue, anywhere between zero and two-thirds of them could be blue. Yep. So do you prefer the bet that pays off a dollar on red or the bet that pays off a dollar on blue? There's no right answer. I'm just asking your preferences. Uh, I, I'd, uh, I'd, shoot, I'd shoot for the blue. I'd try to go for it on that one. So you're an optimist. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's no right answer. Yep. Um, what about the case where, same idea. Yep. Um, it's either a dollar, if it's either red or yellow. So remember, a third of them are red, but yep. yellows could be anywhere between zero and 60. Or a dollar if it's either blue or yellow, and you're sure the two-thirds number blue or yellow. So what do you go for? The you win a dollar if it's red or yellow, and then you know it could be that you get the dollar for sure because it could be that all the you know the sixty balls are all yellow, and then everything's either red or yellow. And uh, or do you go for blue or yellow? Um, red or yellow. Okay, so you're an optimist. And which is fine. Again, there's okay. no right answer. So in other words, you went for the optimistic choice in the case it was either red or blue, because uh, you said, well, blue could be... Um, could be more, so we'll go for it, yeah. Yeah. And likewise, you said, I'm going to be the optimist for red or yellow, could be more, I'm going to go for it. Okay? Most people are just the opposite of you. So most people go for the red and for the blue and yellow, but there's no right answer. There's nothing wrong with it. Yep, yep. But what is the case is both for the people who are optimists like you and go for the blue and the red or yellow, uh, 
and for the people who go for the red or blue or yellow, which is the more standard thing, you were just the opposite of standard, but again, you cannot be acting as if you have a probability. There is no probability on earth that's compatible with your choices, and let me convince you, because <laughs> um, it's a really easy argument. Uh, if you had a probability on things, I mean, the obvious thing to do would be, be one-third red, but it doesn't matter. I mean, you, you could be one-third red and let's say one-third blue, one-third yellow. That would be the obvious thing, because here's a case where you don't know how many, if you had to fix a probability, you the have obvious to do thing 50, to do 50, would be 50-50. Yeah. But I'm saying no matter what probability you choose. So if you preferred, so bear with me on this, if yep. you preferred blue to red, which is what you did, and you were what's called an expected utility maximizer, that means you must think the probability of blue is higher than the probability of red. If you preferred red or yellow to blue or yellow, that must mean you think the probability of red or yellow is higher than the probability of blue or yellow. That's impossible. If you think the blue, blue has a higher probability than red, then just adding yellow to both of them, because yellow is what's called a disjoint event. Yep. If blue is better than red, then blue or yellow has to be better than red or yellow. So people who are rational and making, and I put rational in square, yes. uh, scare quotes there, I mean, I guess that, you know, if you're doing this, you didn't see me doing it Audio, before, yeah. on air, but, but uh, if you're rational, there's no way you can prefer or blue or yellow, uh, sorry, red or yellow to blue or yellow as you did, and also prefer blue to red. And similarly, you, what most people do, and I'm one of the most people for what it's worth, if you prefer red to blue, and you prefer blue or yellow to red or yellow, because those are like sure probabilities. The red guy is saying, he's the conservative guy, if you yep. prefer red to blue, it's because well, with red it's going to be one a third of the time blue, it could be somewhere between zero and two thirds, I don't know which. Let me go for the thing that seems less ambiguous, if yep. you like. Yep. Let me go for, and likewise, blue or yellow versus red or yellow, blue or yellow is two thirds for sure, right? Because I don't know how many blues or yellows there are, but no. 60 out of 90 are either blue or yellow. Red or yellow, they'll be anywhere between one-third and one, right? Uh, I'm going to go for the thing where I, I'm confident that it's two-thirds rather than the thing where I, I'm uncertain. And again, there's no probability consistent with that. So hmm. that says that people who are making decisions this way, and, and I'm one of them, I would, I would do that. I, I, I'm actually one of the conservative types that would prefer red to blue and blue or yellow to, to red or yellow. Yep. Uh, there is no way I could be using making my decisions based on probability. Because there's no probability compatible with both answers. Right? Yeah. So that says that people are not what what decision leaders call maximum maximum expected utility expect utility maximizers. They're we, not we're not calculating upstairs in a very precise fashion in that way. Well we're not, so one way of modeling what people do, which I'm actually comfortable with, is saying, look, my uncertainty in this case shouldn't be described by a single distribution. I shouldn't say, because I have no clue between blue and yellow, I should make them both equal and therefore one-third and one-third. I should take a set of distributions. All my distributions should give red probability of third, because I'm sure about that one. A third of the guys are red. But blue could be anywhere between zero and two-thirds. So rather than modeling my uncertainty by one distribution, I'm going to model it by a set of distributions. And I don't know which one is the right one. And if you think about climate change, that makes a lot of sense. So instead of saying there's one distribution that describes my uncertainty with climate change, we have lots of different models. We don't know which is the right one. They make different assumptions. I have a set of distributions. 
Now, it could be that all the distributions, as in this case, are telling me that red has probability one-third. So when you have a set of distributions, it's like you're not totally clueless. You could, you know, for some things, you might, in fact, know their exact probability. Or you might know that, well, you know, I know at least 10 of them are blue and at least 10 of them are yellow. So it's not that their probability of blue is anywhere between zero and two-thirds. I have some bounds. I, I know something, right? And I think that's what it's like with climate change models that you're not totally clueless. I mean, the models do agree on some stuff, or, you know, if they disagree, they don't disagree widely and say the probably could be anywhere between zero and one. I totally have no clue. I have some clue. Yeah, we have an idea, yep. And, and the some clue is being modeled by the set of probabilities that you're using. You don't just use one. Using a set, the set captures whatever uncertainty you have. If the probability is somewhere between you know, a quarter and three quarters, okay, you restrict the probability distributions that give this event probability between one quarter and three quarters, right? So that's the idea. But now the interesting next step is, if your uncertainty is modeled by a set of distributions, how do you make decisions based on that? Am I making sense? Yeah, I, I want yeah. to separate out. There's how you model uncertainty, which is step one. Then the next step is, once you've got a model of uncertainty, What's your rule for deciding what action to take based on that model? And, and that is curious. So where where do your thoughts go there? I mean, if we're going to stick with the environmental model just just for now, and you know, there's a government agency that's considering uh, you know carbon output from vehicles and factories and things along these lines, and they're imagining global and national effects uh, on right. on wildlife, on foodstuffs, on things yep, along those which is lines. Exactly what and I mean, they are, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. And 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 uh, you know, carbon. I mean, it's just one of many factors, CO two. Um, so so they're they're looking at a bunch of these models. Um, in terms of how decision making uh, shakes out through that many lenses and that many potential perspectives and that many sort of, uh, it's a little bit of augury. You know, we're kind of guessing. Like you had said, right. we haven't we haven't seen the Earth go from birth to extinction. Two million times and say, well, you know, I mean, the last whole bunch of times that Earth yeah, was around. Yeah, exactly. That, I mean, if you had, then, then you should feel much more comfortable. Oh, much more confident. Probability distribution. Yeah, right? of course, we'd have a reasonable. But so, so we're we're kind of groping, and it's a bit of augury there. Well, how, so, how, you know, what decision theorists recommend? Yeah. There are various approaches, but one that I'm personally a fan of is minimizing expected regret. That sounds like quite a technical mouthful. But <laughs> try to explain. So your regret is how bad you would feel if you made the wrong decision. Let me give you an example. Uh, you're trying to decide which horse to bet on in a horse race. Yeah. Um, so you bet on, on, on Northern Dancer to win, and, 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 and Lucky Strike wins, and you say, oh, word I'm not allowed to use. Uh, if I'd only bet on Lucky Strike, I, I would have you know, made 50 bucks instead of losing 50 bucks, right? So your regret is the difference between how you actually did, given what you chose to do, and how you could have done had you been smart and done the right thing in retrospect. Am I making sense? Like, you know, yes. So we can compute your regret, and people think about regret all the time. Turns out regret is a huge psychological motivator. I mean, how bad would you feel if something happened? So it turns out that people, you know, lots of psychological experiments have shown that people are very sensitive to issues of regret, and they compare. When they're trying to make a decision, they often try to minimize regret. Minimize that bet, you know, choose something that's sort of safe, that no matter what happens, you can sort of explain, well, you know, even if I've done the right thing, I'm not that far off 
Yep, yep. How I would have done had I done the right thing if I'd have known it, right? I mean, this is uh, this is maybe a CYA policy that you know you can explain to your manager. Okay, I didn't, maybe I didn't do the best thing, but I'm not too far off. You know, even if you see what happened, I'm not too far off. Yep. It's Obviously, it's not what happened yeah. in the you know the, the meltdown in 2008 when people were betting huge amounts on on, on bonds and 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 everybody defaulted and they lost tons. They weren't minimizing regret for sure. Um, now, if you have probabilities, you can talk about minimizing expected regret. You can, you know, for each possible outcome, you know, if a red ball is chosen, if a blue ball is chosen, if a yellow ball is chosen, you can figure out how much regret you would feel, and your expected regret is multiplying your regret by the by the likelihood of that outcome. If you have one distribution, if you have many distributions for each distribution, you can figure out your expected regret, and then maybe. Be conservative. Take the worst case expected regret or something like that. You know, try to say that. Well, no matter what the true distribution is, I'm I'm not going to regret it too much. Got it. So, so I, I, I haven't blown you away. With no, that. no, no. I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm imagining you know somebody in the the audience here who maybe runs a you know runs some kind of an augmented reality startup company somewhere, and they're they're really you know the 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 horse they're betting on, the lucky strike they're betting on is is you know adoption of a certain. De- you know, kind of technology over a certain amount of time, and they have to make decisions as to, you know, when do we roll this thing out, when do we launch it, when might be the right time, things like that. From your perspective, it's, um, or what we might do is is look at what are the reasonable possible futures that could come about here, what are the the maybe ranges of probability of... of right. Of I'm going to add one more feature. Sure. Let's. Now. Not all probabilities might be equal. So you have ranges of probability, but you might be more confident about some than others. So That's if I true. think about this in terms of climate models. So, you know, let's say there's 100 climate models out there on the table. But, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I like these 10, and I think the other 90 are, you know, not so good. I mean, I, I, I don't have to be 0 or 1, but, but I can talk about my degree of confidence in each of the models. So now what I would do, so each of the models, if you like, makes a prediction, has a probability associated with it. But now I'm going to weight regret by my confidence in that model. Now, why? what's the advantage of doing this? Well, first of all, it takes, I, I might have this extra information that I might not want to treat all models as equal, and, and this is a way of saying, okay, not all models are equal. Some are, as far as I'm concerned, better than others, and I'm going to weight their predictions. Not ignore the prediction, but weight it. By, by my degree of confidence in that model. The other thing that this allows, that this is, I think, critical, is learning. So you can imagine over time, you get extra information. That, you know, somebody's running a computer simulation that makes one model look a lot better than another. And there are canonical ways of updating your confidence to take into account that extra information. Hmm. So what you'd expect to happen over time is what we, what we hope would happen. So let's take a really simple case with a coin. Yep. I hand you a coin whose bias you don't know. Yep. So at the beginning, you have no clue of its probabilities. The probability, you have a set of probability distributions. The probability of heads could be anywhere between zero and one. Now you start tossing the coin. You tossed it ten times, and you've got seven heads and three tails. Now it's still possible that the coin, the probability of heads is one-tenth. It's possible. Yep. Probably heads is one-tenth, and you were just... Amazingly unlucky, you got seven heads, although heads is really unlucky. It's yep. possible. It's much more likely 
that the coin is, you know, more like probably 0.7 heads. Yep. Right? Because you got 7 heads out of 10. Am I, am I making sense? Yes, yes. Where, where's the evidence? Right. So now you've seen some evidence, and that would lead you to updating your confidence. So at the beginning, you might say, I had no clue. So I placed confidence one on each of these probability measures. I, I really had no clue. But now that I've tossed the coin 10 times, well, now I'm much more confident that the probability of heads is closer to 0.7 than that it's closer to 0.1. And I want my confidence to reflect that. Does that make sense? It, it does. And now this sounds like, you know, if we're going to keep this as a system, and, and I just want to close this idea because I, 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 I'm enjoying it. Um, it, it sounds like updating this as a system as we experiment and go back to sort of our confidence model, so to speak, this would be potentially quite an endeavor, but something that maybe a responsible government uh, or, or a larger organization might might want to do or maybe even be obligated to do if they're making a massively Absolutely. important That's decision. Like the nice thing about this is as you get more and more information, at least if you're in a stable world, you're sort of converging to one distribution. Certainly if you toss in the coin, that's the easiest thing to think yep. about. As you get more and more evidence, you're more and more certain about the true distribution. Right? I mean, yes. The more times you toss it, okay, now I've tossed it a thousand times and I've seen 700 hits. So now I'm pretty damn confident that it's you know pretty close to probably 0.7 hits. Yep. And you know I, I still can't totally rule out probably 0.1 hits, but boy, it's exceedingly unlikely. It's right? Really unlikely, yeah. And toss it a million times, you get even more certain, right? Yep. So what's happening here is that this approach is converging to the approach. That's what happens if you make decisions according to minimizing expected weighted regret. That's the technical term. Yep. This approach is converging to the decision you would make if you had a single distribution. So what this approach is doing in a natural way is saying is, is letting you move naturally from cluelessness to, if you like, cluefulness. Right, where at the beginning you have totally no clue, so you're saying, okay, I got a set of distributions, and I really don't know which is the right one. They all are equal as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Now I've got more and more evidence, and as you get more evidence, you're more confident about which distribution accurately describes what's going on, and you're moving closer and closer to a setting that is how you would act if you had a single distribution. Is that you know? So yes. if you like. Um, think about the balls and urns case. It's you did lots of experiments drawing the ball from the urn, and and you started you know being able to see how many times you, you pulled out a blue ball and a yellow ball. Well, so at the beginning you had no clue how many blue balls there were and how many yellow balls there were. But after you've done this a hundred times, you have an idea you, what the ratio is. You have a pretty good are. idea. After you've done it a thousand times, you have a better idea. So what you would hope is that you're you're sort of converging to the point where you're, you know, suppose it turns out that in fact there's an equal number of blue and yellow, that you'd hope that your approach would converge to the, the kind of decision you would make if it was probably one-third, one-third, one-third. Because yep. you're more and more certain that that's the situation. Yep. And that's what this allows you to do. Got that it. it. It's sort of taking into account, so remember when I said at the beginning I want to treat very differently a setting where I have no clue about how likely the coin is to land hits. Yep. Versus a setting where I've tossed it a million times and I'm pretty damn confident that it's, it's, it's a fair coin. And I want to be able to move smoothly from the setting where I have no clue to the setting where I'm confident. Without changing my technique. It's the same technique all the time. Yeah. What's happening is I'm changing my confidence levels, updating them to take into account my evidence. 
and and do do larger organs you know does does the government no okay this is is my research that i'm talking about here and and it hasn't penetrated the real world yet but i'm you know ever hopeful and 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 um so right now i i don't think you know again how do the climate folks do it well there's all sorts of politics going on as well of course yeah and variables so, so, so that you know they sort of have to they do take into account all the models but they don't weight them because they're political considerations. Yep. Right? That, that um, you know, saying one model is, is, I'm much more confident this one than this one, is more or less telling the people who are doing the unco- model that you're unconfident in that you don't really like their research and, and that turns out to be politically unacceptable. So there's other issues involved. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, at least the setting with the coins is sort of an apolitical situation. It is, very much so. So, so life gets more, but you can certainly imagine if a large organization, so, you know, again, think of an insurance company. There's some risks it understands really well. There's others that I claim it doesn't understand really well. And this is internal, there's no politics involved, yep. hopefully. And you can imagine them, you know, hopefully you'd expect them to be more conservative with the stuff they don't understand well. And and the stuff they understand well, they know exactly how to price the policy, so to speak. Yep. Uh, and the stuff they don't understand well, they don't know how to price the policy, so they're going to be more conservative. They don't want to lose money, right? And so this approach would let them move naturally from being conservative to, you know, not having to be as conservative as they get more information, if that makes sense, it, right? So, it does. Again, and it's on, you know, the, the, the political factors are definitely, I mean, you know, the, there is power and there there is kind of the... the the jousting that will occur in terms of what ideas prevail—it's not always this kind of objective calculation. But but right, to think right. that there might be a some degree of a grounding place that yeah. that well, it would that's be. That's what I'm hoping yep. to do. I, I I'm not obviously I can't address the political issues. All of you them, know, I, of course. I focus on the on the technical issues, but but uh, but these are the kinds of things that people I think need to think about as they sort of once you again I mean I like my own method, so I guess I've been pushing that. But I think the big picture I want to get across is that I think we do have to move away from a purely probabilistic approach to handle settings where a single probability measure is perhaps not the most appropriate way of representing uncertainty. No, indeed. I think I think as many perspectives as we can take and as we start to move forward, you know, as, as nations in in managing, you know, policies around the environment, around other other important emerging technologies and, and uh Factors and forces that that can really have such such grand ramifications. Wouldn't it make sense to you know be a bit more uh, objective, be a bit more regimented about about uh, issues that are so grand? And so I can certainly see the value there, Joe. I, I know we we also went a little bit over time, but I did want to let you complete your idea, and it was good to be able to flesh it out, find some tangible examples of where it might be used, and get an understanding of of how folks might apply it. Again, uh, thinking about global policy is is a, a, a Unfortunately, I'm not in global policy right now, but it's a large hobby of mine, and so this has been fascinating on my end. If people want to learn more about you, Joe, whether it's the, the book you're coming out with or, or just sort of your own research in, in the domain of uncertainty, um, where would they go on the web to find you? On uh, my homepage, where I have all my publications. And, and, and uh, so as long as you spell my last name, H-A-L-P-E-R-N, do a web search and Joe Halpern, I should be about the first 30 hits you get or so. 
So uh, I, I'm pretty easy to find on the web. Bada bing. Okay, cool. Yeah, this guy looks almost just like you. I'm on your website right now. Cool, Joe. Well, hey, thanks again so much for, for being on the Tech Emergent Podcast. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care, Dan. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, then be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Uh, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.